Mean Old Lion Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Bracky, also known as Chief C. Each week I'll examine the most pressing legal issues of our time and their unique impact on black communities and bodies. So settle in and don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment um, on Twitter, Instagram, or any other place you listen to your favorite podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, Chief B. So let's jump right into it. My guest for today um, is literally, as we like to say, from across the pond. It is Detective Chief Inspector Anila Khalil Khan um, from the United Kingdom, who is visiting us here in the United States at the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives Conference in Cleveland, Ohio. So welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you. Really pleasure to be here. So I'm excited to do this interview with you. Um, we met via basically FaceTime. We've been Zooming with each other, but you've been on a tour with a lot of um, officers in the South, different organizations, and you're here as a Fulbright Scholar. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what that means? Yeah, sure. So I'll start off by myself. My name's Anila Khalil Khan. I'm a Detective Chief Inspector from South Yorkshire Police. So that's all like in the middle of the UK. Uh, my day role is um, in charge of CID investigations in my district. Um, about 120 officers, ranging from all aspects of serious and complex crime. I've been in the police 20 years, um, always based at South Yorkshire as well. So last year, um, an advertisement came out for the Fulbright Scholarship, which sees me in America for three months. Um, research is a topic of my choice, but affiliated to um, an historical black university. So I've been based within Howard University in DC and North Carolina Central in Durham. Um, been here two months so far, I've got a month left. But what also um, my research is about is women in policing, in particular women of colour in policing. How do we recruit, retain and progress them to higher ranks? So can you explain to our audience who may not know what a Fulbright Scholar is, how does that come about? What are the things that you needed to do? How, what was that application process? And what does that support look like here in the United States? Yeah, so Fulbright is um, really known within, within America um, and obviously across the world. It's an opportunity for professionals, academics, to go to a country of their choice or whatever um, country is affiliated to them. Uh, and research a topic, uh, what they are interested in. So last year, Fulbright and the US-UK Fulbright um, Commission, in conjunction with the National Black Police Officers Association in the UK, um, advertised for this pioneer role um, project, really, for three months to come for a candidate in the policing profession back in the UK to research a topic of their choice. What this means is I work quite closely with law enforcement, um, also the School of Law in particular universities, while supporting my professional in inquiries and in, um, sort of investigations as well. So thank you for that. So why the interest in the United States around women of color and policing, right? Um, the interest in how we are recruiting, attempting to retain, promote within systems, I'm in support with them. What have you seen here in the United States that piqued your interest that might actually benefit you when you return home? Mm -hmm. Obviously in America, there's so many different law enforcement agencies for the start, and it's so diverse as a country from the white Caucasian, black community, Hispanic, um, Asian. It's such a variety. And 
from over in the UK, you look across it to America and you see so much diversity within policing. So that's what obviously piqued my interest. What are the law enforcement agencies in America doing to not only recruit but retain officers as well, in particular women? And what support do their women um, and officers get to go to the higher rank? What I've seen is dark indifferences. So nationally in, in America, it's 12% women in law enforcement agencies out of an agency of, I think it's about 18,000 law enforcement agencies you have? Yeah, uh, with about 800,000 individuals in the law enforcement community. Yeah. There is about 12% that are women across those 18,000 agencies. Which is such a large number, but yet the percentage of women is, is so low. Whereas in the UK, yes, we are smaller, but we have a, a lot of women in policing. We're, we're touching just over 35% nationally and in my force alone we have got a really good representation of females at higher ranks my chiefs are female assistant chiefs are female what we struggle with in the back in the uk is getting people of color within places in particular people from the black community so that's what's interested me initially uh, and what i found in an america um, there's a lot of black females within police and it's great to see someone that I can look up to and represent and, and sort of admire to be. And it's something that's why I would like to take back to the UK as well. So one statistic in the United States is yes, there's 12% women, which means that also includes women of color, but it also women of the majority, right? And in the United States, it's only about 0.3 or 3%, um, somewhere between 0.3 and 3% are women in positions of um, supervisory position, which means as you go up the ring, women of color become less and less visible. What I'm hearing you say, that that may be very similar in the UK? Yeah, very, very similar. Yes, we have, as you said, lots of women um, at higher ranks in the UK, not many of color um, in, in, in higher ranks in the UK. So what are the barriers that you're seeing in the UK for women first entering into the profession that may be similar in the United States, or where are those stark differences? What are those barriers or obstacles to them entering and being successful in the profession? I think historically, both in the UK and America, what I've seen is women see policing or law enforcement as a male-orientated environment. They, they are wanting to join, however, when it comes to maternity leave or family commitments. They often take the prime role of caring, and therefore it hinders their progression. However, what we do in England is we have a really good scheme for um, mothers who want to be on maternity leave. They can have up to a year, um, sometimes less, sometimes more with leave. So there's a lot of really good initiatives back in the UK so they can return to work and, and be part-time so they can have that balance. Both male and females can do that. So there's a really good balance of work-life commitment in the UK. What I'm seeing in America, and again, in the UK, is, is still that stigma role to uh, law enforcement saying it's male-orientated. But I think we need to go back a step and look at the communities that we're serving and the communities that we're trying to recruit from and is understanding their barriers. And I think sometimes it's the historical issues that have happened or cultural issues that happen. We need to break those and overcome those before we can recruit all. So in the U.S., there is an initiative called 30 by 30. And what that is, is that agencies commit to, they pledge to, um, by the year 2030, have a representation of about 30% of their force of being women. 
And um, the initiative has really taken off. And when I was the chief of police in Charlottesville, I was one of the first signers on of this thing. This was something we were very interested in. But what I found was that although we're interested in recruitment um, to have representation up to 30%, we have not put in the infrastructure that it would be in place to support 30% more women entering in as the primary caregivers for not only our children, possibly our aging parents, um, and that we are also caregivers in very informal roles to community um, persons, um, other neighbors. I mean, we don't put the infrastructure in place, but what I heard you say in the UK is you're at least putting that infrastructure in place so you'll be able to accept as you have more and more women coming into the profession. You said um, family leave for up to a year. What are the other support systems that are in place beyond family leave are, you know, um, some places call it maternity leave, but we do call it family care or FMLA here. How, what are those um, other systems you have in place? Yeah, so if we go back to the recruitment phase as well, so we have changed the requirements or entrance place so you can have a degree, you don't have to have a degree, we can support that. We've changed our fitness and scheme and level where it's more adaptable for everyone, not just males. It's open to women as well who may struggle with their fitness. And we really support the women into coming into different roles. We also have, as you said, the family leave, the maternity leave, uh, but also on top of that, we have the ability to be part-time working now. It's all on a scale and it's all what, what matches the organizational lead, need as well as the family or person individual lead, need. And it relates to childcare or as you said um, adult care whatever but it has to meet the criteria and where possible we support them we also have the option of moving departments as well so if it doesn't work in one unit they can, they can work in another department but we majority of the time do support both males and females but obviously women as the main carers to have that flexibility of reducing our hours or working part-time because we we understand that women want to have families men want to have families and having that balance between work and, and life and private life is so so important on top of that we have a really good well-being scheme especially my force we really support our officers from front line to higher ranking there's a national uh, well-being called oscar kilo which really gives every officer the ability to have their well-being so during the conference that we're here we're been, there have been a lot of workshops on wellness and wellness means different things to a lot of different people. And in the more than 38 years that I've been in law enforcement and policing, when I first started, wellness just meant physical fitness. Were you able to run um, a certain number of miles? Um, did you physically look in shape? That has changed tremendously. Wellness means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, and coming from the UK where there's a national policing system, are those kinds of programs easier to implement than say in the United States where it may be constrained by budget, there are departments that are sizes of 10 or less, um, there's wellness cannot be built into it. How are the advantages of having a unified policing system under one umbrella different um, the advantages versus here in the United States where it's every man or woman for themselves? And I, I think, if I could start personally, I think it's a really good system we've got in the UK. Every law enforcement is run very similarly, if not the same. All the um, national schemes is available for everyone. It's not a matter of 
one force has it, it doesn't have it, it doesn't, doesn't. It's up to the national to drive that. And each force have taken advantage over the years, especially post-COVID, a lot of officers have suffered both um, emotionally, physically and financially. We have so many different initiatives and schemes that really health and well-being is so, so important. I'm, I'm also the well-being uh, lead for my district as well. So we have week, monthly meetings, initiatives, supporting not only from physical, but from psychological help and financial help and emotional help that every officer has that opportunity, whether that's peer support or counselling. The opportunities are there. So what I'm excited about um, during our conversations and as our audience listens to you, here in the United States, we are fascinated with your accents from across, um, from across the, 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 the continent here. The one thing I would ask is, so that always fascinates and surprises us. What has fascinated and surprised you in your time here in the United States? Well, not only the accents, the different accents from the north and the south, but the hospitality. Everyone has been so warming and welcoming. Uh, I'm not saying that we're not like that in the UK, but it's, it's really sort of from the, from the waitresses to the cleaners, to everyone has been so hospitable and supportive. And once I talk to them about why I'm here and what my drive and mission is, it opens so many more doors. So it, the hospitality is my, what I'm taking home. So I'm excited about the hospitality. Um, I've been, you know, fangirling you on LinkedIn lately because you have been posting every place and space that you have been in. Um, shout out to uh, one of my favorites, Chief Armstrong in Apex, North Carolina, who hosted you recently. You're at Howard University. You're at North Carolina um, Central, correct? Yes. Is where you're, or your two host educational agencies. In those places, as thought leaders or people who are on cutting edges of research, when their research is being done, have they talked to you about the best ways to retain? Because we talk about recruitment, but once you're in the door, there's no guarantee you want to stay there. Most of us are looking out the door towards the pension, towards the next job. What are you finding out in the research here in the United States and in the United Kingdom about our approaches to not only retention, but promotion so that we do move up the rank. Yeah, uh, very similar actually. So both agencies, obviously UK and the US, and in particular uh, Metropolitan DC, I spoke, I spoke to the now Chief Smith uh, and Assistant Chief Kane. What, what I've observed is they're really people's people. They want to know what their staff are up to. They want to engage with their staff. In, in DC, they have luncheons every month with the women in their departments, they actually do their fitness tests with their, their, their colleagues. Uh, and that, that personal approach takes, is so much valuable. And Chief Armstrong and the other chiefs I've, and sheriffs that I've met in North Carolina, you know, walking around with everyone, not only to respect them because of their rank, but actually respect them as people because they're so engaged with their staff. And I think that's so valuable to the front line and to senior levels that if you're approachable and have that support and, and you got your colleagues back and your staff's back, takes you so far. What both agencies, both the US and UK are really good at is supporting and opening up doors for leadership initiatives or um, driving and sort of headhunting those potential future leaders. We have great schemes back in the UK, supporting our future um, leaders. And I've seen that in the US as well. Slightly different because obviously each agency is so different. 
but everyone has that drive to support not only their own development, but the, those of their colleagues as well. So if I were to ask you, um, you had this magic wand and this limitless amount of funds and resources. What is the one thing that you see as um, lacking? Like I can look at this and say, you know what? No one is paying attention to this thing, particularly as we look about women of color who want to enter into the police or the law enforcement profession, because there is a lot of range here, whether it's a sheriff's department, whether it's corrections. I just left a, a, a form on diplomatic services, an area I probably never would have thought of going into at some point, federal government. What is lacking um, that you would see that you would, if you were writing that white paper and said, this is that magic bullet, what might you think about? I really do think, especially for women and, and women from minority, is actually educating the, the seniors, the elderly of that community, because that will drive us to get the right people in. But equally, once women are in the environment, it's supporting them. And just because they haven't got a degree, just because they haven't got a master's, it doesn't mean that they can't lead. They can lead. But I think it would be opening and, and supporting those individuals as well. And most importantly, is being fair and, and you know, Fairness can take you, so you don't need money for fairness. It's that treating everyone with the respect that you, you want to be treated with. So the, the magic wand would be just to have everyone on that sort of trajectory of achievement. And some people are happy where they are, but actually pushing them and driving them. So the one big thing I would say when we talk about degrees, um, I am fortunate enough to hold a doctorate. I have a PhD in instructional management and leadership. But what was interesting about it that um, throughout my tenure, my 38 years, as a woman in policing, I had to be more credentialed, more pedigreed. My, you know, bona fides had to be extensive. My resume is five pages long. Um, my CV has to be, you know, packed to the gills. And some of my colleagues um, who have replaced me have had a high school education, but were seen as more confident, strictly for no other reason than they were male. I was always considered the affirmative action hire, the quota hire, the demographic hire. Um, do you see that similarly occurring in the UK? I think that occurs for every woman in any industry. We are so hard on ourselves and it's our imposter syndrome that comes out that we don't think we are good enough. And I always say this, if there's a job application and there's 10 criteria and women only have three, and a man has one, women will always think, oh, I haven't got, I've only got three, I'm not going to go for it. But the men always, well, why not? And I think if we women t turn and change our thought process and actually have that little bit of confidence, not only in ourselves, but and support others to have that confidence, I think we'll go, go further. But women of ethnicity and, and of colour have got not only battling with being a female, battling of a person of colour, and with, my, with me, with my religion being a, a Muslim, got three things to battle and three things to prove myself for but but as you say your qualifications speak for it you know i, I don't need to broadcast what i've done I, I can just show what i've done i think that's what we as women need to support each other and do have that little bit of confidence and try and put that imposter syndrome in the closet and just just drive yourself and you know that's an interesting point right um, when we talk about resumes, you're exactly right. There's a book called Women Don't Ask by Linda Babcock um, from Carnegie Mellon University. What she wrote is something similar, that if there's a job application and there's 10 
criterion. If we don't have something as simple as the word the mm. that we're comfortable with, we won't put it in an application. But a male will just put in an application for any job, whether they have qualifications or not. And they're like, well, why not me? I can run this organization. I can do this. There's another thing that we do, which is very interesting. Because we work so hard in our organizations, and because you just said we, we show all the time our capabilities, what we can do, we assume that when there is an opening, that someone's going to see us, see the work that we did, and ask us to fill the role, right? And we're never going to ask for that position. We're not going to say, you know what, I'm interested in that promotion. We think that we need to be humble at all times, and we need to wait to be asked. Men don't wait to be asked. They are busting in that door. Um, you know, there's comedians that will talk about that, you know, if there's a, a somebody who's um, just on fries at McDonald's, man, they're feeling confident about any position they can do. But a female is going to put herself down. Imposter syndrome is very real. We're always afraid someone's going to find us out. But in reality, we are doing some really good things and some really hard work. Um, what advice would you give your 19-year-old self entering into the profession um, after 20 years? And I'm just creating an age for my guests here because some of us have 38 years in this profession, probably older than, than, than our chief inspector here. Um, but um, what advice would you give your 19-year-old self entering into the profession? Or your youthful self yeah. entering into the profession? I think what I would say is, Take, take the advantage and, and take a risk. I, I, and growing throughout, throughout my career, I didn't really take risks because I was always like, what if this happened, what if that happened? And now I've got to a level where I will take that risk because you don't know what might la li that might lead to. Being in America for three months has led to so many different aspects I would never have thought about. So looking back on myself, going back to my, my younger years, I think I would be, be ballsy, go for it and just have that little bit of self-confidence. Be humble, but just let your work speak for yourselves. But more importantly, surround yourself by your inner champions, your, your inner circle who will feed you the good things, but equally feed you where you may have messed up or you may have got something wrong. You need that fair balance. You don't want your champions all the time. You want that fair balance and have those allies, both men and female, who will support you. And I think once you surround yourself by the right people, it will take you further. So over the years of doing this work, I have found that men will naturally mentor each other, that they will go towards each other. They will help support them and help be successful. During your career, have you been able to identify mentors? Has someone mentored you um, along the way? Um, and if so, how, how did that relationship develop and how is it going? Um, a bit of both, really. So I've had people approach me for me for them to mentor me, and I've approached people to for them to mentor me. And what what I sort of resonate with is either their career path, which is similar to mine, or their sort of outlook. And it's I still, you know, even now being in America, I still find text messages to my mentors who just bouncing ideas off. But you just need those. You don't have to be in contact with them every single day, but just knowing that they're there for you. Um, it, it takes you a long way. It's just finding someone that you've got something in common with, with someone who's fair and balanced. And at least now with more women and with these 30 by 30 initiatives, the type of work that Noble was doing here at the conference, really just elevating um, women to the high profile position, supporting their leadership. 
that's really important work because when I first started literally in 1984, and audience, I don't want to hear a word from you on this, um, there were no women who looked like me or there were very few women who looked like me. So the only thing I could do was be mentored from afar. I could look at someone who I thought might be doing the right things to make it through the profession and to become um, at least a leader and be fortunate enough to, to lead two agencies at the highest level, which is unusual for women and women of color like ourselves who, when people first see us, the first thing they see is our ethnicity. They see our gender or how they believe we identify as our gender roles. And more importantly, there's still the attitudes of what they believe we can do as women um, in what positions. In the United Kingdom, as there are opportunities to move throughout every part of the agency, even, you know, the special operations divisions, um, bomb squads, counter-ciphers, what does that look like in those even, you know, we have these male-dominated professions, but then there's these, these other specialty units that are just uber male. Um, what does that look like in the UK? Uh, I'd be fortunate and I have battled those challenges. I've worked in, and, and led as a manager in both covert policing and foreman and ha handling and obviously in CID, which is generally a male orientated. So I've had the option and the fortune to, to break those barriers and overcome those hurdles. There are the options there and there is the availability there as well. So yes, it's achievable. Um, you just need to be determining yourself to, to go go to those places and find that ally within. And just going back to what you said about um, finding people who represent you or look like you, that's what my my mission in life is to leave that legacy for the future candidates of policing and law enforcement who look like me and have that similar background to me. They can do it. If I can do it, they can. That's the legacy that I want to leave behind. So, you know, as I tell everybody, uh, one of my mottos is, your inheritance does not have to be your legacy. So what you're given when you walk through the door is not the same thing that happens when you leave out the door. So we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up. We're gonna do some final thoughts here um, as I do my reflections at the end of this. What are your final thoughts, final words as you leave um, here um, in August to head back home? What would you say to the listening audience um, about your experiences, your next steps, um, I'm trying to come over there. I'm a pescatarian, so I hear the fish and chips are amazing. I'm going to hold you to that. But what, were, what are your final thoughts? Final thoughts are um, law enforcement is a very, very difficult and challenging role to be in in the current climate globally, not just in the US or the UK. But we've got some really good officers, really good candidates who are doing a really good service for the community. And I think we just need to continue with that drive and that ambition and that passion. But equally, places like Noble and, and back in the UK, the National Black Police Association, we need to keep these communities ongoing and continue to drive to get the representation there. Um, my final thoughts are, and where I'm going to be in the future, who knows? America, UK, anywhere, as long as I'm doing something I'm enjoying. Shout out to those who may be hiring. Uh, we might have a detective chief inspector that was coming to your, uh, a department near you. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, and this is Black Arm of the Law podcast. Please tell someone about the show. Remember to follow, comment, rate, subscribe on Instagram, uh, Twitter, on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042, and I will catch you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. 
Executive producers, Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.